Hello, I'm Rupert Wheeler, Managing Editor of Whiskey Magazine. Welcome to Episode 2 of our Battle of the Blends podcast, which was recently recorded at the Soho Whiskey Club in London. For those who did not hear the first episode, the rules are very simple. We asked two contestants to create a whiskey blend over six months under certain rules. The two contestants are the current champion, Neil Ridley, our editor-at-large, and George Keeble, who is the manager at the Soho Whiskey Club. The blends are now complete and marrying in their 25-litre cask at Master of Mole. Both blends will soon be drowned into three centilitre bottles and marked A or B. They will then be sent out to over 400 judges, who then taste and vote online for their favourite. The winner will be announced on the 31st of March at Whiskey Live London. The podcast involved Neil Ridley, George Keeble, myself and John Glazer, founder of Compass Box, and was recorded in front of a live audience who were very much involved in the Q&A sessions. For more information on the rules, episode one and how to be a judge, please go to our website at whiskeymag.com. I now hand you over to Neil Ridley. So we've gone through this sort of slightly convoluted journey of quite a haphazard blend, which I put together through to John's incredibly well-blended boutique blend and now we're going to move on to something which is a brand which for me some of you will have heard of most of you will have heard of but I don't know if any of you will have tried this particular aged version now I got really hooked on the idea of all blended whiskies probably about 20 years ago and it was really the first whiskey I ever tried which got me into writing professionally about whiskey and about three or four years ago, I started to think, well, you occasionally find old bottles of blended whiskey. Not old as in they were 40 years old, but bottles which were bottled a long time ago, which hadn't been consumed by anybody. And the amazing thing is they were absolutely dirt cheap. You could buy these things for next to nothing. And so I started to explore old Johnny Walkers, old Teachers, old White Horse, old Black and Whites, old Shivers Brothers uh, blended whiskies from the 70s, 60s, 50s, 80s, whenever it was, it didn't matter really. For me, it was about discovering something which was like a time capsule. And what I brought along tonight is an 80s bottling of White Horse. Now... This is a brand which I hold quite dear to my heart. I, I, who's been to Isla? Not enough people. Go, it's brilliant, you'll love it. Um, Isla's an incredible place to visit, but it has the um, several great distilleries there. It has the Lagvulin distillery, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Now, White Horse, back in its heyday, H-E-Y-R-H-A-Y, even for me that was a terrible joke sorry um, back in its heyday um, would have had a huge amount of Lagavulin going into it and what I wanted to bring along is an old bottling so from the 80s which is this one here just have a sniff of that now if I can find it there it is that's it there's an inherent smokiness to this. Now, what I'm led to believe is that back in the 1980s, 
Single malts were making a lot. They weren't really selling a lot. And if you go back through history now and look at all the great, the classic single malt distilleries, Port Ellen is a very good example of this, closed down in 1983, was really a distillery that was there for blended whiskies. And the company at the time, um, Allied, I think, it was it Allied, John, or United Distillery? It was Allied that owned them, wasn't it? Port Ellen and Kalila, uh, I think. Anyway, so there was a big company, it's now Diageo anyway, but um, the company before them that owned both Port Ellen and Kalila went, you know what, we've kind of got two peated whiskies here, and they're both going into the same products. It's all right, this Port Ellen, but you know what, we probably don't need this on a balance sheet, so it got closed down. Um, we all know about Port Ellen now, of course, you know, history will tell us a lot, and of course those whiskies have matured into excellent single malts. Much in the same way that lots of very old Lagavulin would have been thrown, probably quite shamelessly, into old white horse. Now, I'm not saying it's in here, I hope it is, but actually, when you drink this, this is unlike the white horse you're going to try today, today's bottlings. It's very different, and there is an enormous lack of consistency between this point in the 80s and 2016. But I would urge anyone who has it has been sniffy in the past about blended whiskies to go and try and find an old bottle of blended whiskey because it will start you on your real journey of discovery and for me when i dip my nose into there it is a time capsule there are aromas in this glass that you just simply don't find in any whiskey today so i just wanted to bring that on and that was really an influence for me on my original Battle of the Blends blend, and it will always be with me in terms of what I really think about blended whiskies and how great blended whiskies are. Yeah, a, a good friend of mine um, a few months ago, uh, about six months ago, he gave me a glass of whiskey blind and said, um, here you go, George, uh, what do you think this is? Uh, I sniffed it, I said, well, um, well, it's definitely whiskey. Um, and he went, yeah. I said, that's, that's, all I, that's all I know. I, I've never smelt or tasted a uh, whiskey like this whiskey. And it turns out it was a 1950s white horse, uh, which um, some people say contains the, uh, the, the almost mythical uh, malt mill uh, whiskey. Um, uh, it was absolutely exceptional, and every white horse I've had since has been equally as impressive that... Some people might say they don't make blends like they used to, or, or, or maybe they do, uh, but uh, particularly with, with White Horse, I mean... It's a very different blend today, but I think what it highlights is the ev evolution of blends. And actually, the rarity of great whiskies that go in, probably just without even thinking about it, went into blends at the time, because the, the brand name, the blends, the sale of the blended whiskey around the world was far more important than products that went into it, the ages that went into it. So, of course, I've opened Pandora's box now. Now old white horse is going to be really expensive, isn't it? Because everyone's <laughs> suddenly going to go and find this. I mean, I, this was about, I don't know, 25 pounds at an auction. And you can find, I bought cases of this stuff wherever I go. I'm, you know, I don't really mind. You guys go and do it. It's worth exploring because you will find those real gems, those little time capsules. Not all of them are as good. No, I was going to say. You, there's a little you, bit of inconsistency there. But uh, it, I, I, you brought... That's my next, my next business venture. <laughs> there we are. Yeah.
You, you, you brought in some uh, some teachers, oh, teachers yeah. from when was it? From seventies or sixties? That one, sixties yeah. yeah, teachers, right. and um, yeah, it, it was okay. I, I was quite excited it? when you when you brought it in. I was like, <laughs> oh, well, hello. This is, yeah, this is quite exciting. Cracked and open. Then, it was very. Cracked open. It was. Yeah. Uh, no, it actually still just tastes pretty pretty kind of standard. Yeah. Um, and they're not all And there is a lack of a lack of consistency. But what we want to talk about is deconstruction of blended whiskies today. And we'd like to bring John back behind the bar to talk about what it's like building a flavour profile of a, of, a, of a blend, but then deconstructing those flavours. Well, actually... <laughs> is that what we're talking about? <laughs> I'm using the term deconstruction quite loosely. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think it's fascinating to taste these old whiskies, these, particularly these old blends from... 30, 40, 50 years ago, and what it does show is that things evolve. Yeah? Styles evolve, the way we distill whiskey has evolved. Yeah? We, we produce this stuff, it hasn't always been exactly the same for all these decades and decades, despite what the marketing people will, will, will try to say. Things have changed, and they can continue to change. And so the perception people have of blended Scotch whiskey today can change, but when people have really, really tightly held, deeply held, perceptions about something in their life, it's hard to change those with just an argument. You need to give people tangible evidence, something that they can experience that'll change that, yeah? And that's where I want to see blended Scotch whiskey go over time, back to something that can be, what, it, what made it popular over the last 50, 60 years, is its versatility, and lightness was a virtue in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Yeah. So it can have versatility, but also have compelling character at the same time. Anyway, just trying to make a segue between what you were talking about and where, where I'm going. So I mentioned Eleuthera a little while ago, the whiskey we called Eleuthera. So 17, 18 years ago, I was on the beach on the island of Eleuthera, in the Caribbean. Um, and in Eleuthera, you're you go to the beach. Um, it's about all you do, you go to the beach, or you smoke weed with Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> and on this day, I was at the beach. Is Lenny Kravitz there? <laughs> He's got a home there, yeah. yeah. I was not partying with Lenny Kravitz, I'm joking. <laughs> but anyway, I bring it up, because that's where you know, I had this moment, this aha moment, the light bulb going off over the head and all that sort of thing. And I turned to my wife, Amy, and I said, um, I know what I want to do now. I'm going to start a little Scotch whiskey blending house. Because at the time, I was working for the biggest Scotch whiskey company. And I went to that company and said, let's start a small Scotch whiskey blending house. And this is 15, 16 years ago. 16, well, 16, 17 years ago. And the world was very different. Now, this store existed, but this bar did not. These kinds of events were very, very rare. <laughs> yeah. The global shipments of Scotch whiskey were flat or declining back then. Inventories of aging Scotch whiskey were, were too high. Yeah, because the forecasts against which they had been laid down years prior assumed things would grow, and they didn't. They declined. So it was a, it was a tough time for the Scotch whiskey industry. And so I'm this American guy who came over to work in, in marketing and product development for this big Scotch whiskey company. And I, you know, geeking out blending whiskeys at home and learning everything I can from the folks I'm working with and thinking what the world needs to change the way people think about blended Scotch whiskey, which to me, I thought when I got into the Scotch whiskey industry and went to work for a big blended Scotch whiskey brand, I thought I discovered this huge secret that I wanted to share with the world 
about what Scotch whiskey can be, what blended Scotch whiskey can be. Yes, single malts, yeah, malt whiskey drinking. But blended Scotch whiskey, there's this a style of Scotch whiskey which creates so much more versatility for drinking it in different ways. Yeah? I thought, and for me, the other thing that captured my imagination about it was creativity and the creativity it offered. What you guys are doing here with Battle of the Blends, yeah? In theory. To me, in theory. <laughs> to me, blending is a platform for creativity. Blending is a platform for creativity. If you start from that perspective, and then if you're using component whiskeys of really good quality and with really interesting, compelling flavors, okay? You know, we got reference back to talking about why they chose these grain whiskeys rather than the standard grain whiskeys you can get from Scotland. You use really good quality components. You look at blending as a platform for creativity. You realize that grain whiskey can actually add certain things to the malt whiskey, even though it's lighter. Lighter doesn't mean bad. If we all wanted to drink really flavorful, heavy whiskey, we'd drink, you know, Laphroaig and Ardbeg every day for the rest of our lives. But how would that make you feel? All due respect to those brands. <laughs> right? Which I love. Slightly throaty, I'd say. <laughs> so I said to Aim, I'm going to do this. And so I, I, I left the, the business and I started the Compass Box Whiskey Company with this mission to change things for the better, with this mission to share the joys of great whiskey with more people. He picks up the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Scotch whiskey with more people <clears throat> in the world. And how do we do that? We do it by making Scotch whiskey more interesting. We do it by making really good quality, delicious products. And I thought, that's so simple. Why has no one done this before? Well, 16 years later, <laughs> we're still teaching people. Still, but still, you know, we're making progress toward that mission. Now, let me put this all in context for you, because history is important. Right? Who's, anyone recognize this book, Whiskey by Aeneas MacDonald? Everybody in this room should get a copy of this. Now, it's out of print right now, but it'll come back. It's very smart. Yeah. It's out of print, uh, but you can buy it at used bookshops. Um, uh, Ian Buxton has the, the copyright to this book. I'm, I understand he's going to bring it back. It's a really important whiskey book, Scotch whiskey book, written in 1930 by a very opinionated, imagine that, Scotsman, um, about, uh, about whiskey. And, about, and he get, he's, he's, the historical context is, is fascinating. But some of the things he says, he, he was ahead of his time in some ways, and he was quite, didn't, quite get to, didn't quite understand where Scotch whiskey was going in other ways. Still fascinating reading. Let me, I'm going to bore you. Give me 120 seconds, all right, to bore you. You may have to hold my microphone. Because I want to read passage from this, right? It's going to give a context to what we're talking about tonight. Yeah? Will you grant me that? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Right, here we go. Anais MacDonald, Whiskey, 1930. This is from the chapter, first chapter is called The Nature of Whiskey, the second chapter is called History, the third chapter we're in is called Making and Blending, 1930. The distilling of whiskey is only one half of the manufacturing process. We still have to account for the fact that though there are less than 130 Scotch and Irish distilleries, there are over 4,000 brands of whiskey on the market. Whence comes this monstrous multiplication? The answer is to be found in the process known as blending. The practice of blending whiskey sprang up in Scotland about 1860 as a natural development of a process which was much older, vatting. By vatting is meant the mixing of single whiskies from the same distillery, but belonging to various distillations made at different periods of the year. 
Vatting evolved to be uh, a term that was used to mean vattings of whiskeys from different distilleries as well. But anyway, back then, uh, single whiskeys from the same distillery. Its purpose is to obtain a whiskey of uniform character, for whiskey distilled in October differs from a winter whiskey, and both of them differ from a spring whiskey, owing to changes in temperature, character of barley, the chemical composition of the water employed. Today we believe it's more from temperature than the latter two. But anyway, 1930, whiskey, he calls it, that master of delicate adjustments differs from week to week. So this is why vatting began, to create consistency across a, a year or a season. Yeah. About 1853, spirits from the same distillery, but of different ages, were already being blended. By 1865, pot still and patent still, in other words, grain whiskey, uh, were being blended for the home market, meaning the UK market. The pioneers in this revolution, for it was nothing less, were Messrs. Andrew Usher and Company of Edinburgh, whose old vatted Glenlivet achieved a considerable reputation about that time. Now he's calling... This is what's widely considered the very first blended Scotch whiskey brand, old vatted Glenlivet, even though it was vatted with grain whiskey as well, blended Scotch whiskey. Um, nothing short of a revolution, he says. Um, this, this brand achieved a considerable reputation at the time. The practice spread in soon Glasgow, Leith, Dundee, and Aberdeen were the chief centers of a considerable blending industry. From a purely commercial point of view, blending was a tremendous benefit for the distillers. The old single malt whiskies of the Highlands were, on the whole, too powerful and heavy for sedentary town dwellers, <laughs> like us. Blending made it possible to make a whiskey which would suit different climates and different classes of patrons, for by adding the lighter lowland malts and the neutral, and he's not very kind to grain whiskeys, okay? This is where he kind of doesn't, you know, he and I are, don't see eye to eye. And the neutral are almost neutral grain whiskeys, in greater or less degree, a whiskey could be evolved of a weight and a strength of flavor, and a bouquet to suit the taste or the commercial requirements of the blender and obviously of the business. The great export trade in whiskey is almost entirely due to the adaptability and elasticity which blending lent to the industry. Even today, the aesthetics of whiskey have a very definite geographical aspect, and he goes on to explain how tastes for blended whiskey are different in London from they are in in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is different from Glasgow. Glasgow is different from Lancashire. Lancashire is different from Scandinavia. He goes on and on and on talking about how blenders are making different styles of blended Scotch whiskey for different palates, for different geographies, for different tastes. So that is where blended Scotch whiskey came from in the Scotch whiskey industry. Now, the thing that um, Aeneas didn't quite see coming was the different ways people enjoyed whiskey, because he was a malt whiskey, or as they called it back then, self-whiskey uh, lover, which is fine. What he abhorred was in the turn of the, the, 19th, the 20th century when the laws changed that made both the lighter grain whiskey and malt whiskey legally considered whiskey. He wanted only malt whiskey to be considered whiskey. Grain whiskey would be something else, but he lost that battle. Yeah, the commercial um, lobbies won that battle. But if they hadn't, we wouldn't have the blended Scotch whiskey industry that we have today. We wouldn't have, arguably, one could argue, the, uh, the, the breadth of uh, style of malt whiskey distilleries that we have in Scotland today. He got it wrong. When he was writing that book in 1930, the Scotch whiskey industry was producing just under 100 million liters of alcohol. 40 years later, the Scotch whiskey production was at its peak. It was at 500 million liters of alcohol. Most of that, almost all of that, blended Scotch whiskey. Most of that, almost all of that, drunk in a glass with an ice cube, 
Maybe a splash of water. Maybe some soda water. Soda water, he, he hates drinking scotch and soda. I love drinking scotch and soda. He didn't quite see this one coming either. But he does point out that people have been drinking scotch whiskey with soda and ice since the latter part of the 19th century. So the whiskey industry took off in ways he never imagined. You know? He has his points of view, and they're, they're very, um, uh, uh, well, wittily <laughs> written about. It's a really sort of entertaining book for whiskey geeks like us. Um, but that's where it comes from. And that's all the deconstructing of, the, of blended Scotch whiskey I wanted to do tonight. <laughs> As I said, using it quite loosely. Um, yeah, so. Thank you. If I can, if I can just, um, 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 just uh, the, the, the denouement. Um, the, um, um, yeah, so that's why I started my business. Because of where the, the industry has come from. And it's kind of sort of lost, it had lost... Um, um, I think it's lost, it had lost its way along the way in allowing blended Scotch whiskies to become, to not keep up with the times. As I said, 60s, 70s, people, 80s light, liked lighter whiskies. A lot of the famous brands today were sold on the virtue of being light, but tastes change. And with that, so, so can styles. When you're talking about individual makers deciding, I want to make whiskies in this way. You can make blended Scotch whiskey in quite flavorful ways. You can make Scotch whiskey in quite light, delicate ways for different kinds of drinking, different kinds of tastes. Yeah. But I want to say this in closing, that I, I implore all of you, or at least the two-thirds of you, who don't have a go-to blended Scotch whiskey at the house. Yeah? One, of the great, one of the world's great drinks, and clearly one of your, our, our favorite drinks, can be enjoyed in so many more different and historically... Um, uh, in, in ways that, so many different ways, many of which with lots of historical precedent. Yeah? The enjoyment when I got home last night, when it was the nice night, <laughs> it was recent, yeah, and I got home and made a blended Scotch whiskey, ice, and soda. I keep my blended Scotch whiskey in the freezer so that when you add the soda, it's nice and cold. The Japanese have got it right. Try to master the very simple Scotch and soda at home on a warm evening when you get home and save the whiskeys we're about to drink for later in the evening. That way you can drink scotch all night. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, folks. Brilliant. Right. Uh, we are moving on to the, um, the next dram. Uh, this is one uh, component from, uh, from my blend. Uh, you've your new, you, your you, new you, blend. You, you've not uh, stolen, this, uh, stolen this one off me, have you? I'm not sure I needed to on uh, this occasion. Okay. It's getting a bit so, trippy now, isn't it? So, um, uh, I was a bit cautious when I used uh, this whiskey. Uh, this is Ben Romuk, uh 10 year old. Just the standard 10 year old Ben Romuk, classic Space Eyed. Uh, they, they, they market themselves as being the kind of more traditional uh, Space Eyed production, which is a bit smoky. Um, it's a very good whiskey, um, cheap as chips, well, yeah, way under 40 quid a bottle. Um, and I think you're underselling it. I think this is a really, really excellent No, it's, 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 it's absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. Um, so I had two bottles and my blend was coming along very nicely and I poured one bottle. I thought I'd go easy because it is surprisingly 
smoky, uh, this whiskey. It really, it really does have quite a lot of smokiness to it. Um, and this was a stage where my cask was maybe about half full of different whiskies. And um, so I poured one, one bottle into the cask and I left it overnight. And a friend of mine, um, he, he popped by and I said, oh, you know, let me, let me just give you a little, little taste of what I've got going on. Well, actually, no, I didn't do that. Actually, what I did is I said, try this. Uh, and I gave him a glass. And I said, what do you think it is? And he, it was very, it was very sweet. He, 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 he thought it was maybe a Springbank. And Springbank is uh, one of my absolute favorite distilleries. And he said it was a Springbank. And then I said, well, actually, no, this is, this is from the cask in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> um, and, and he was really impressed. And I was like, yes, I'm onto one. Watch out! I'm after your, I'm after your crown. Oh, you um, be, um, yeah. And uh, and and so I was like, brilliant, fantastic, right? Well, I've got a second. In goes the second bottle, uh, and then left it for a couple of days. Came back to it, tried it again. Decimated. Going back to what uh, Neil was talking about earlier about the kind of PT stuff. In the first, the naivety of youth, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> In the first, um, in the first issue, you've all got a copy of the of, of the most recent issue of Whiskey Mag. In the first one, um, I, I wrote and I said, um, you know, I added this, that, the other. Um, uh, when it comes to the peated whiskey, I've learned from mucking around by making uh, blends at home uh, that a little peat goes a long way. Mm -hmm. It really does. Um, so I decided to opt out of adding anything seriously peaty until maybe later on down the, down the line. Um, and so adding the second bottle, and it kind of really took over. There's a big difficulty there because, of course, it's in there. What you add, you can't take away. You've, You've just got, got to counteract. that away with yeah. something else. And, uh, yeah, I, I, interesting. I, I made this mistake with my first blend, George, of course, and I had to uh, then uh, try and blend that away. Um, but the, no, it was a very valid point, this, because um, there's a guy who I would credit as one of, really one of Scotland's sort of best blenders, Sandy Hislop, who puts together Ballantines and a lot of the Shiver Whiskies and Royal Salute and some of these really big brands. And I went on a blending course many years ago with him, and it was as simple as we were doing, so we were putting different regions together, and he said, okay, you come to your final whiskey, your peated whiskey. However much you think you should add, add half of that. And we were all like, yeah, whatever, you know, Of course, you get it wrong straight away. And you, you can't lose that, it is in there. It dominates everything then. And it is then a case of trying to balance it out with other things, so yeah, it's a we, delicacy we, there. We did a blending session in here. We did two uh, over the last couple of years. And in the middle of each table, it was quite a heavy session. Um, in the middle of each table, we had a full bottle of Speyside, Highland, Lowland, Grain, but like a half <laughs> bottle of Isla. Okay. And the emphasis was very much on, when it comes to the Isla, a little goes a long way. Um, so, uh, other I hope you like smoky blends, ladies and gentlemen, because we've got there's go, whatever we end up with is going to be too smoky, isn't it? Probably. I mean, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say that this was quite a smoky blend, and it was the award-winning blend. <laughs> well, I wasn't in that competition. You know. All right. 
Oh. This I, I didn't see this coming. Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's wrap this up now and we're going to move we've, on. We've got one to final dram. Another really, for you. really excellent whiskey now. Um, I'd like to invite John back again to explain um, this incredible creation, which I think is one of your latest ones, isn't it, John? Um, yeah. Circus. Well, actually, I'd like to point this out with, with what John's doing as well. So we're not just looking at what's in the glass, but we're looking at what's on the bottle, on the label. And I think there's a real evolution of flavour going on. But not only that, there's an evolution of design, of aesthetic. And I have to say, John is way out there above and beyond anybody else at the moment. And you have been for probably a, a decade now with the way that you make your whiskies look. And I think that's a hugely important thing. I know we always say it's what's in a bottle that counts, but actually the wider context of what whiskey is and the way people associate and they buy whiskey is of course the way the label looks. And you the care and attention, eyes, you do. And the say. care and attention that you put into putting these together, the labels, they mirror the personalities of the whiskey. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Well, that's what we try to do. <clears throat> Again, years ago, I stood at the Quake Bar in the Craigalaki Hotel back in my big company days. And I remember, this is, this is 16, 17, 18 years ago. I remember looking around the bar, all the whiskeys on the wall, there were whiskeys all, around, all along the wall. And I remember thinking to myself, why does it seem like every Scotch whiskey label looks like it was designed in the time of Queen Victoria? Because they all were. <laughs> why do they all kind of have this kind of similar feel and vibe going on? Why couldn't people, why can't we take a, a lesson from the world of, of wine, which is the world that I came from, and try to apply some more personality? And one of the reasons I would argue is a lot of those brands, many of those brands, were big corporate brands. What I think is happening now in whiskey, and one of the things that I think you're talking about, is that there are more people in whiskey. There are more small companies um, <clears throat> starting distilleries. Um, Teeling, for example, when you've got up here. And then with, with real people and small companies and entrepreneurs come stories. Mm -hmm. And if we, we, you said we, we, we drink with our eyes, but we also are compelled by stories and products that have stories. Yeah? And I, I, you know, not, we, we don't, um, we're not making up any stories. We have lots of stories to tell. We have more copy per square inch than any back label in the industry. See, that's the smallest <laughs> text I've ever because seen. Because we have a lot to bottle. say. We want to talk to people about what's in the bottle. Yeah. Tell us so about bring, the circus, John. This comes back to uh, what's in the bottle. Um, so this is blended Scotch whiskey. We're going to end with blended Scotch whiskey, but I shouldn't have told you that because if you put it to your nose and you didn't, I didn't tell you. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm quite confident that much, most of the people in the room would never have guessed that. You've got some quite old components here. What you've got, this is two parcels of whiskey which we were, um, were, were made available to us a couple years ago that were this, very unusual. Blended Scotch whiskeys, malt whiskey, grain whiskey blends, blended back 124, sorry, I can't say that, many, many years ago, <laughs> all right, unless you ask me to, I can't tell you. Um, the SWA is watching. And they were blended, and for whatever reason we don't know, not needed, and put back into cask, in this case put into sherry butts, so blended Scotch whiskey, malt and grain whiskey blend, put back into sherry butts, and then left age, blended, for a de couple decades, yeah. Gorgeous stuff. Came out of the barrel, even though it was a blend of components and we had no idea what it was, to us it just sang, and it just sang as one single component, if you will, if I can mix my metaphors. Yeah? And that's the basis of this, this recipe. Um, to that, we added 
a little extra, believe it or not, old, quite old, grain whiskey. Yeah? So we actually increased the proportion of grain whiskey from what it had, but with some tremendously old, rich grain whiskey to add luscious sort of mouthfeel and sweetness. And to that, then, we put a little bit more of um, a bit of more of verve, vitality into it with a, a younger um, sherry cask-aged malt whiskey. Now, all the details about this, except for the ages, are on the website. Okay? The distilleries that we used, Ben Rinnis, um, and, well, <laughs> actually, that's the only... <laughs> I say that because we do that for every single whiskey, but that's the only component we're sure of. Everything else was a vatting, a vatting of grain whiskeys that we purchased, a vatting of this old blended scotch whiskey that we purchased. But to us, they, were, they, they behaved as single components. So it's an unusual blend, an unusual recipe, but it is, in fact, old blended scotch whiskey. Nice. So, so could you repeat? Could I repeat that? No, no, no. <laughs> from, no, the, no. from the top. No, 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 no. <laughs> could you make the same whiskey again? Um, you know, we think about this. The, the, the short answer is no. Because we couldn't possibly, the, the people we bought the old cascade blends from don't have any more like that. Um, so the short answer is no. But what we have been thinking about is, well, what if we gave ourselves several years to get there? Could we lay down the components to try to recreate this? And that's a question we haven't answered yet. It's a very good point. Very briefly, I, I'm the chairman of the World Whiskies Awards. So um, it's in, I mean, that was a fascinating thing to see the last three, four, five years of uh, the, the, the best single malts that win that award. And I'm really pleased it was a scotch. I think that's a great thing for Scotland because there's been a lot of criticism of Scotch whiskies internationally. Mm. Um, what it highlights is a, a distillery doing something very innovative and very different. I mean, that is a very different whiskey to anything else. It was judged by the world's best palates, though, without question. That, that, that the awards are every year attended and, and judged by... <laughs> Which I will need to review in due course, I may add, of course. But um, that it is definitely the world's best palettes that, that, that award this award. And, and that's a great time and a great example of a whiskey which came out of nowhere. There were some amazing world whiskies there, which, yeah, you could say are very clearly nipping at the heels of Scotch whiskey. And this is a simple thing. It's like, it's not saying one is better than the other. There is a great influence from world whiskey now, it's taken its influence from scotch, unquestionably. You know, you can go back to uh, when um, uh, Masataka Takatsuru came to... Uh, Masataka Takatsuru. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, in the early sort of turn of the century, I guess, uh, 1919, I think, um, came to study in Scotland to learn the art of making a, a Scotch whiskey because he had the intention of going back to Japan and making an amazing Japanese whiskey. And all, I, I, pretty much I can say this about Cavalan, about Tasmanian whiskey, Indian whiskey, whatever it is. It is hugely influenced by the success of Scotch whiskey. Of course it is, because Scotch whiskey is a world-leading product. Um, what I love about this is that there is an incredible regionality. And you know what? This is why we're all here, isn't it? You know, to, to go away and go, you know what? There's an amazing Tasmanian whiskey. There's an amazing Indian whiskey. There's an amazing blended whiskey, which John just talks about. If we were just drinking the same things day in, day out, we might as well be drinking vodka to get drunk, you know? I don't want to... Well, actually, I do want to do it. But, um, but I don't want to do that, really, because... 
That's why walls of whiskey exist like this. Life would be boring if we all liked the same things. That's why our blends are so different. Questions? Yeah, oh, Mike. So I, I had a question. I think someone earlier had talked about how there used to be a sort of snobbishness about blends and how uh, single malts used to be kind of a premium product and blends were seen as being you know, lower down the quality scale. But there seems to be an increasing number of blends that are certainly priced at a premium level and things like you know blends composed entirely from closed distilleries or only from whiskies that are more than, say, 35 years old or 40 years old. Is this just part of the you know, whiskey becoming more of a premium product in general, or is there something else that's driving this? And is that a trend that you see continuing, John? Sorry, do you reckon Sorry. Yeah. I, th I think um, that um, a lot of what, if we're seeing, looking at talking about the same thing that, w that we see, that I see, is a lot of line extensions from well-known brands. Um, and I, I'm, because they've been successful, you know, they, we, we, I'm sure we will continue to see more. But trees don't grow to the sky, so at some point it's got to, um, people are gonna start to say, well, I'm not sure about the, the price value relationship or something along those lines, or I've had enough, I've got so many in my cabinet, I can't buy anymore, whatever it might be. It can't last forever. I don't know if this is exactly where you're going with that, but. I think that's all great and great for the companies that have been able to make a lot of money by um, releasing those kinds of products. And it's been driving the value of the Scotch whiskey industry year on year. But to me, it's not the kind of innovation we need. And a lot of people point to that as innovation, and Scotch whiskey is very innovative. I actually think we need greater innovation to, to do things that bring more people in rather than continue to appeal to people who can afford really expensive whiskeys. My point of view, since you asked me. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, another question? Joe, off you go. Um, so f following on from that, do you feel that the major effect of what you guys are doing in the blended market is that you're hoping that the overall standard of blended whiskey goes up and therefore the market of that goes up? Or are you looking to steal some of the disenfranchised single malt drinkers who aren't happy with the, the way that single malt market's going? Um, and, and bring them on to, to more of these kind of boutique blends? And if so, how do you protect against the, the issues that the single malt market is facing in terms of supply and reliability and um, those kind of, the kind of problems that they're having? Well, what we're trying to do is just bro broaden the church, really. Um, not trying to go after disenfranchised malt whiskey drinkers. Are there any here? I hope not. There's <laughs> kind of a lot here. But no, seriously, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is just make it more interesting to more people, whether they are dyed-in-the-wool malt whiskey drinkers or you know, people who are just interested in good things to drink, good spirits. That's what we're trying to do. And I think to answer the second part of the question about, I think if I understood it correctly, about how we'll protect ourselves against, was it shortages? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah just... Uh, Lots of forward planning <laughs> and being trying to be smart about that, about how much we think we can sell in five, 10 years and, uh, and lend in 20 years and laying down stocks for that. We have a 20-year sales plan. I know, which sounds ridiculous, you know, right? Anyone does anything remotely having to do with forecasting in this room knows that 20-year forecasts don't, no, no, make no sense. <laughs> They're never right. One-year forecasts are rarely right. I'd like to be retired. Does that, that answer the question? Yeah. Eleuthera, perhaps? Yeah. yeah. 
Me and Lenny? Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a legacy. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, Brett. Thank you. Far away. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, very informative. Um, anyway, not so much a question about the blends, but hopefully you guys are the right people to give an opinion on this one is travel exclusive. It's kind of frustrating me a little bit. And See, after listening to you guys... He's giving me the mic to take yeah. this one. Right. Uh, after listening, you, you know, to, to your three opinions and things all night, the it, your opinion basically is, is that big blends and big brands trying to be artisans by releasing something specific and only duty free shops that you can't get, like, or is no? I mean, is it's it just a very a interesting thing because you know, I like these blends. These 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 are these are hey, great. Listen, I'd like to have these more uh, than a travel. Exclusive. Who goes on holiday, right? Everybody except me, right? <laughs> I'm I'm so. Hey, listen, I've got two young children, right? So I, don't go, I go to Cromer for my holidays, right? There isn't a travel retail exclusive from Cromer. Um, you live quite near Cromer, don't you? Um, anyway, let, there is a very good point with that. And you are exactly right. The idea of GTR, these travel retail exclusives, um, this is a fascinating thing. And it's a, a relatively modern um, issue, certainly within the last five years anyway, as long as I can think that GTR sales, so when people are going through airports all over the world, this has become a kind of territory all of its own. I mean, the sales that you can generate for a company through um, airport sales are absolutely enormous. And I think it's a very difficult thing, this, for companies, because if you want your back, you know, you want your 18-year-old, you want your 12-year-old, whatever it is, to be listed by one of the companies that owns the retail space in these places. That's a nightmare because there's an enormous amount of competition for companies. So what you have to do is you have to play the game of producing something which is essentially a GTR exclusive. And yeah, you know what? There's some there that probably aren't great. There's some which I have to say are absolutely outstanding though, unquestionably. Yeah, well, all right. Delicious. You've got some money in your pocket, sir, if you can buy a couple of bottles of that. But no, there is a point where there are unusual things that are coming out that, yeah, it's more difficult now. But this is another conundrum that distillers have to face in that we're not just dealing with some guy that buys it from the vintage house in Soho or Master of Malt or Whiskey Exchange Online or, where, you know, wherever it may be, Luthien's, you know, great retailer, um, you know, in, in the north of England. It's wherever you go, malt whiskey has become a global phenomenon. And if you don't do that, somebody else will do it for you. And that's the thing. It's another thing for distillers to consider where their stock needs to go. And that's the hard thing. It comes back to this whole thing of you cannot turn the tap on and get a 12-year-old. So you have to balance out, like John just said, a 20-year plan. I remember being in a meeting about three years ago, and a guy said... We're putting a 30-year-old plan. To, not trying to outdo you, but there were, someone said we're trying to do a 30-year plan of our stock, and I thought you're going to be like probably dead <laughs> by the time this stuff even comes out. I'm going to be long retired. I hope I'm going to be long retired anyway. But you start thinking in insane terms about things, and you know that for me tells me one thing: that whiskey is a really valuable product. You know? it's, it's something which is really important, that if people are planning ahead in terms of that far in advance, that they really see the value in whiskey. Um, and they see what is inherently great about it. And that 
new people are starting to enjoy it. Um, we might not like a lot of these no-age statements or these GTRs or whatever they are, but they serve a purpose. You know what? We'll get through that point where people are laying down more, they're making more, they're putting greater investments into bigger distilleries to make more. But we're in that point where this sort of stuff is just starting to happen. You know what? In 10 years' time, there's going to be a lot more whiskey out there. And I think, you know what? It's probably easy to say we're going to see a lot more age statement stuff coming back again. I'd just like to add to that because in the next issue of Whiskey Magazine, which I know you're going to buy, there is a whole feature on global travel retail with tastings included. Thank you very much. Seamless. Can I just say, actually, this is, is, I have to say, all full credit to Rupert, and I, I, a round of applause for him on this, because, you know, this is a lot of fun, this sort of thing, and we have, you know, we, we get whiskies and we enjoy good whiskies, and we put them into a cask. Rupert put this entire thing together with a cartoon, and I have to say, I've never looked better. Look at the muscles on that. <laughs> Incredible. I, so that, I'd also thank like you to add at this point that, obviously, they do all the hard work, but there's an awful lot of work going on behind the scenes and everything. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Neil, George and John for coming this evening. But most of all, I'd like to thank you for coming. And I want to see you at Whiskey Live in London next year. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode two. We intend to record further podcasts during next year, and to find details of these or to subscribe to our magazine, then please visit our website, whiskeymag.com. I hope you can join us for our next podcast, and thanks very much. <laughs>